Good morning, Restoration. That is an awesome, upbeat, wonderful video to watch. We are just about to uh, go to the depths of darkness here with scripture reading today. Um, so I'll throw in a little transition to segue here to make it a little easier. Um, Pete asked me this morning, oh, Janice, do we need to like go over some names? Because last time I was up here, I had quite the time with Old Testament names. I was like, oh, no, it's going to be Romans. It's going to be fine. And then I read our scripture today. So when Matthew asks you to read scripture, you might want to preview it before you say yes. All right. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 1, 16 through chapter 2, 4. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For all they, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to sameful acts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance.
Ooh, who picks those scriptures? I'm Rob. If we haven't met before, I'm so glad you're here. Even after that scripture, I am glad you're here. How many of you have heard that scripture before? Or parts of that scripture? Okay, like a little bit of this room, a little bit more over here than over here. Um, did you catch the those who disobey their parents? I mean, of all the things that you heard in that one, insolent and disobey their parents. I don't know what your reaction to that scripture is, but what I'm hoping you heard in it was the very last part. God's kindness is intended to turn us away from what we were thinking and what we were doing and go in a new direction. To think about that a little further, uh, I just want to confess that I blew it this week. I mean, completely blew it. One of my offspring really wants a computer. That child will remain nameless, I hope. And it's not just a computer, it's a brand new computer. And it's not just a new computer, it's an expensive kind of computer. My first mistake was to use the avoidance tactic. I know some of you use this. Um, so I thought it was really effective until I realized it's just denial in disguise. So when this child would say, hey, could we talk about a computer? I would say, uh, well, I'm really busy. Or I don't have time, or I have a meeting. And it worked for a while, but um, it really just led to the next tactic, which was, uh, I'd like to know when we can. Very mature, you know, when can we sit down and talk? When could we discuss this? And so then I moved from denial to delaying. The delay tactic, I thought, was also very effective, but uh, if you've been on the controlling side of this, which isn't always the parent, but the controlling side, you think it's effective. Can I just say it's not? And if you're a kid, you know it's not effective. The reason it's not is because it just causes drift. It makes tough conversations that much tougher. And so as days turned into weeks, then people start to feel like they're moving apart. And so when it finally did come to talking, I didn't ask any, so help me understand and actually want to hear the answer. Tell me why this is important to you. It was one or two questions, and then, oh my, all right, what is the path of least resistance? So um, I just sent a picture of a computer and said, how does this look? To which the child said, oh my gosh, in excitement, really? And I said, well, we can talk. What this child didn't know was that I had wiped the memory of one of our old computers, then I had reinstalled new software, pulled the case off, cleaned every crack and crevice and corner to make it look brand new, and then turned it on hoping with all hope that the old sucker would run the new software. Is this really a new computer? Does it look new? Uh, friends, that's called deception. 
my third and biggest mistake. See, my plans to make something old new failed really badly, which left an even bigger problem. Now, I share that actually very recent painful story because I know I'm not the only one with problems. When we get into conflicts or situations or feel this injustice in the world, we have this tendency to go to two sides of like seemingly opposite things. On the one hand, we'll say, um, and maybe not you say this, but I think a lot of our world says this, like humans have basically good hearts. You know, there's just a few bad ones out there. So we should just try a little bit better than the people around us or try a little harder and believe in yourself and don't hurt other people. There's a new phrase called you do you. Have you heard this before? You do you. It just means that, hey, if it works for you, it's all good. Because there was a lot of judgment in those verses. And so we would, we would tend to avoid that. And we would just say, like, hey, if that works for you, then you do you. Except on the other hand, so we've got these people who say humans have basically good hearts. And on the other hand, what we have is like secretly we're all dying to know what happens at the end of Game of Thrones. Like we can't stop watching it, whether we're, we're believers or unbelievers. And there are these horrible, horrible, like evil characters that are messed up. But I think we're so drawn to it because these messed up characters are trying to fight the injustice of the world. They're trying to restore the things they know are broken in this horrible place. And, and we want to know the end of that. So on the one hand, we say we have these good hearts. And on the other hand, we're like, oh, there is so much injustice. And we'll even take people doing it badly just to see it done right. Or be somehow be right. And yet God's story says that humans have proud hearts. We're pretty stubborn. And yet there's this God who is utterly unique. He's righteous and he acts with mercy and justice and patience to redeem and restore humanity. In other words, he's the one who can make old things brand new. And it doesn't come through delay or denial or deception. It comes through confession. So we're going to look today just a little bit at what confession is and what it does. Because maybe you think you know what confession is, but I think it really helps to, to look holistically at it and look at it from the scripture. If you're wondering why, why confession is such an important thing to talk about as we look at what happens after the resurrection of Jesus and how we can continue to live out Easter, continue to live out the resurrection for days and weeks and months and lives to come, it's because confession is one of the first things that God does. Even in the midst of Jesus being raised from the dead, there are these stories of people who are hiding and he'll appear to them, who are doubting and he'll give evidence to them. And then one who even just completely denied him, and it's sometime later, Jesus appears to Peter. And it's this story of restoration, and there's confession that happens in that. Confession, like I said, is also one of the things that 
the first humans do. It's one of the first things that God asks. If we look back at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes this beautiful world. He creates the heavens and the earth. He puts this garden in this place. It's this garden called delight. And it's a place where humans have everything they need. They're given food. They're given water. They're given shelter. They don't, they're not given clothing, maybe because it's tropical, but as an analogy to not needing things to cover themselves up. They have nothing between them, and there's no shame in the midst of that. They're given good work, and they have this constant communion with God and each other. There's, they're connected. And I don't know how long things were all good. I just know that after there's this good, all good description, you flip the page, and it says there's this crafty animal that instigates doubt in God and in his goodness. Did God really say? In Genesis 3, 6, I think this connects to Romans 1. Genesis 3, 6 says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, then she took some and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they, plural, they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, actually singular, Hebrew, Hebrew noun, or Hebrew noun, singular, they, the couple, hid from the Lord God among the tree of the garden. So picture two people like trying to hide behind one tree, but they're one. So they realize they're naked, they, take the, they make these leaves, they try to cover themselves because their nakedness didn't bring freedom, it brought fear, it brought shame, and their relationship was broken. They tried to cover up, they tried to hide, and they tried to blame. That's what the first humans do. And when I read this story as a teenager, when I read this story as a young adult, I didn't spend a lot of time focusing on what the humans did. I actually spent a lot of time focusing on what I thought God did. And here's what I thought God did. God, in his anger, interrogated them and then kicked them out of the garden. God didn't do that. Anger is actually never mentioned or even implied in the story. In fact, the more I read the story, the more I see God's grace and his kindness in this story. Would you just consider what God does first? God approaches them after they sin. How many of you heard growing up or even now that um, God hates sin and it can't be in his presence? So therefore, there's no way that God would be close to them. But here they sin. They do the one thing that God asked them not to do and God approaches them pursues them, comes towards them. And then when he sees that they're hiding, or trying to hide, 
goes to them and calls out to them, where are you? And then he gives gentle questions to see if they'll confess. Now, I think confession is what, well, I think the first part of confession is when we can admit where we are and who we are, or who we are and where we are. Real confession is admitting who we are and where we are. Confessing is agreeing with or admitting. So when God asks, where are you, do you think he doesn't really know? He is all-powerful, always present, and all-knowing. So if he knows where they are, then he's not asking the question for his benefit. He's asking it for theirs. Do they know where they are? The question isn't geographical. It's relational. Now, when God calls to people in the Bible, he is looking for an answer. So I think I gave a few people, uh, maybe Chad gave you a verse. Somebody have a verse? Uh, Who has Genesis 22? Oh, all right. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Genesis 31. The angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. I answered, here I am. Hmm. Exodus 3. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, replied Moses. 1 Samuel 3. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. Isaiah 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Are you catching a theme to when God says, Here I am, or when God says, Where are you? Or calls out your name? What is the response supposed to be? Here I am. God wanted to know if Adam and Eve knew where they were. Now, where were they lit- literally? And geographically. It's an all place. It's not hypothetical. Where were they literally and geographically? In the garden. In the place of delight. With God's presence. Even though they'd already sinned. And did you catch that I said about the singular and the plurals? They tried to hide among the tree, they were still one, even though they'd already sinned. Maybe their relationship wasn't completely broken. What if Adam and Eve would have responded with, here I am, I totally messed up. I did what I wasn't supposed to, I need your help. 
confession is about being honest. It means that we take off the masks that we use, especially for adults, because teenagers, here's the, here's the deal. Adults, they're just big teenagers who've gotten better at putting masks on. And I see some people who are older than me that are nodding. Thank you. Confessing who we are and where we are means that we admit it's not just about our parents. It's not just about our circumstances or our lack of talent. Because those might be real factors, but confession is admitting somewhere along the line I made a choice. And it was a choice that I made. And it was a choice that I'm not going to excuse or explain. I don't even need to sit and try and psychoanalyze it or understand it. I'm just going to start by admitting it. When we admit it, we have to then consider where it falls. Meaning, if there is no standard, then why does it really matter? if that choice is right or wrong. So confession has to move from admitting who we are and where we are to acknowledging God's holiness. It's got to acknowledge God's holiness and ask for help. That's what Romans 1 is getting at. Romans 1 is saying, hey, creation acknowledges God's holiness. Romans 1.20 says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen so that people are without excuse. Now, how much understanding do each of us need? I don't know. I just know that throughout the world, there are cultures that acknowledge a creator over and over and over and over. They can, it's how they explain it. But I think the other bigger thing is that if we don't acknowledge God's holiness, then, then we really can set whatever standards we want. We'll do it by comparing ourselves with others. We'll usually pick someone that's really a lot worse than us and compare ourselves so we can feel better about ourselves. But Romans 1 says we do this by not acknowledging his holiness and instead worshiping created things instead of the creator. And there are lots of things that it listed. Some things that you might say, oh, that's really bad. Or some things that you might go, oh, so glad I'm not on that list. But the end of that reading says, and if you think you're not on the list and you judge the people who are, you're actually even worse. You're all without excuse. Because God doesn't measure our sin against other people. In fact, he just says that in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's kind of like this. Imagine you and two of your friends. It's a summer day. I mean, we're getting there. We're close. And you go to the beach. You go to this beach, and there's a public dock. There's a big, long dock. And one of you that's super competitive decides to say, hey, let's see how far we can run off that end of the dock and get into the water. It's like a glorified you know, hydro long jump contest. And so your friend gets up there, and she starts running as fast as she can, and she doesn't cut time the launch pad quite perfect. She's a few steps back, or one step back from the end of the dock, but still hurls herself in the body, or in the, into the air, smacks the water 15 feet. She made it 15 feet off the dock. Pretty good. 
So you do a little stretching because you don't want to injure anything. And you start sprinting down, and you just nail. You nail that, land, that end of that launch. You throw yourself out there, hurling. I mean, it doesn't look pretty, but it's effective. 20 feet. You made it, you made it way farther. So you move out of the way, and your next friend goes, and they start running, and they're just hauling. You're like, oh, I'm going to lose, except they trip on one of those little boards that's sticking up close to the end, and they just sail forward, and they barely clear the end of the dock, but they just smack the water, and they made it like three feet. I mean, you've just achieved Olympic-like status. The, the music is going off in your head. It's great. You make fun of your friend, or maybe just a little, but you won. That's comparing ourselves with others. So, but if we have this acknowledging God's holiness, what we need to do is replay this scenario, except this time, you're not trying to see who can go the furthest. You're trying to see who can actually make it across the lake. That's 2,000 feet. How many times do you try before you give up? No six-pack of rock star energy drinks is going to fuel that junk. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're facing. It really doesn't matter if we made it 15 feet or 20 feet or 3 feet. We can't make it across by ourselves. So confession is acknowledging God's holiness, but then it's asking for help. Because God knows that we can't achieve this on our own. That's why he comes to them. He approaches them after they've, they've broken relationship with him. And they're not out of the garden yet. They're not in disconnection, complete disconnection from him. I mean, Romans 3, this, this really judgmental verse that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is followed by, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. Similar to Paul, he tells us no one's innocent. We can't solve this problem on our own. Yet, God makes it right by providing this sacrifice, the substitute. He did it first when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They walk out with animal skins on. He gave them a covering for their sin and their shame. And yes, they did have to leave that garden, but he substituted this covering for them. And then when they formed as a nation and became God's people, he gave them religious sacrifices so that they could approach his presence. It, was a, it wasn't a perfect system. It sounds really, really gross or bloody to us. But in the ancient world, blood was considered life. And so this blood was life-giving life. And then ultimately with Christ's sacrifice and verified by his resurrection, this is the ultimate and final sacrifice. So we don't have to keep doing this. He has completely covered our sin. And yet, we still struggle. We still do things that break relationship with him and with each other. So the third part of confession is not just asking for his help, but accepting his presence. 
We've got to accept God's presence. I mean, consider again uh, Genesis 3. So Adam and Eve sin. God calls out to them. Where, where are you? And what is the response? Ah, uh, I hid because I was afraid when I heard you because I was naked. That was the first response. That was the first question. So God asks another question. Who, who told you that you were naked? Notice how there's no response to that. Uh, I, I would submit to you that uh, shame told me <laughs> that I was naked. The, the knowledge of good and evil and my determinant of that now showed me that. I, I figured that out. Third question. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, the woman that you put here she, she took the fruit and gave some to me, and I ate it. It's not my fault. I, I'm making that part up. Four. What is this you've done? Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Maybe Eve's answer is the closest to confessing, but still not taking that responsibility and then acknowledging God's holiness and then asking for his help. Four questions. This isn't really a three strikes, you're out, but when God asks four questions or when something happens four times in scripture, it's super significant um, because four is this idea of going in all directions it's like a moment in sacred time. There's like this idea of north and south and east and west. It's, it's a moment of thinking in each way. When Jonah got called by God to go up to Nineveh to be, bring a message of hope and peace to them, instead he went down and away. And four times he went down, away. He went to Joppa. Then he went down to the docks. Then he went down to a boat. And then he went down in the boat and laid down. Four chance, four times, this kind of in every direction, where I'm looking, I'm, I'm giving up. I am completely cutting myself off from God's help. Not one time did Adam and Eve acknowledge God's presence. I mean, they did talk to him, but they weren't inviting that presence. They weren't admitting their wrong. They weren't asking for God's help. In other words... What they were saying was, I don't want to or know how to be in the garden. I don't know how to live in this relationship anymore. That's maybe why God sent them out of the garden. It wasn't that he was angry with them and interrogated them and then kicked them out. They no longer knew how to how to live in that relationship. And so he had to try and re-engage that. God continues to give kindness. Continues to offer it. See, when we sin and when we keep it a secret, it just builds these walls. Drift. Confession 
builds bridges. It makes a way. It invites God's presence. And then it allows us to receive his forgiveness. Again, Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you and with me? Can't you see that this kindness is intended to lead you to repentance or to turn you from changing your mind to changing your actions to walking towards him? I mean, if you know the story of Luke 15 of the prodigal son, this younger son demanded the inheritance from his father and ran away, wasted it on wild living, making lots of bad decisions. If you've had friends or you've had adult children that have done that, you know the pain. And yet, it says in the story that while the son was a long way off, the father was out looking for him. Not, not searching because he knew bringing a rebellious son home, wasn't, an adult son, wasn't going to be the, the way that was going to bring him home. But in kindness, he was looking for him. And it was this moment when the younger son was eating the food scraps of an animal that his relatives wouldn't even touch or acknowledge that he goes, like, there's the light bulb moment. Ah, uh, like, wait a second. My father's servants eat better than this. My father is kind and fair. I, I bet if I went home and I confessed and just asked to be one of his servants, that he would allow me. It's God's kindness in Luke 15, in the prodigal son, that leads him home. And he's not just accepted as a servant. He's restored as a son. That's what God wants for each of us. And I hope you see that it's his kindness that is involved from the beginning and the first rebellion through the sacrifice and ultimately the climax of his son. That that can break the power of sin and death in your life and in mine. Because God did want to find Adam and Eve, and he does want to find you and me. When we're honest and we confess, it does lead to forgiveness and repentance and restoration. So as I was sitting there with this response several hours later of this isn't new you lied to me I admit I had to I made a bunch of excuses <laughs> well uh, but after I got over that and I made those mostly to myself I confess to God that what I did was wrong. The way I did it was wrong. And then I confessed to this child. In the midst of confessing to God, I invited his presence to be in my life, to give me peace, to actually bring me close to God, because I'll admit I don't always feel close to God. which allowed me to then have peace in interacting with this person who I dearly love. 
which opened the way to forgiveness and restoration. Friends, that's what God wants us to experience all the time. God knows that we're going to make mistakes, we're going to sin, and we're not going to be perfect. But what he longs for is restored relationship with us and restored relationship among us. And after Christ rose from the dead, he didn't just say, all right, you're all good. I mean, in some sense we were, but he offered us baptism and communion as sacred practices to remember his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and to remember his sacrifice. So today, we're going to practice communion. Before we do that, though, I'd like to, you to consider practicing confession. Hebrews 4, 16 says that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, God offers us his son to restore us with him. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are acknowledging his sacrifice. Remembering what he did to make a way for us. So as we come to the Lord's table, would you remember that it's Jesus who calls you? The one who was crucified and the one who was raised to life the one who forgives and pursues us. And would you allow the Holy Spirit to inspect your own heart, to look for signs of stubbornness or pride or willfulness or places of idolatry, of taking something that is created and putting it above the creator. 1 John 1 8 and 9 says that if we claim to have no sin, then we are only fooling ourselves and we are not living in the truth. But if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. In your worship folder, there's a little sheet of paper. Uh, and if you didn't get a worship folder or, or lost it or someone took it, uh, we do have some more right over at that table. I would encourage you to use this to write down whatever that thing is. Not so we can read it. We're not going to read them. So that you can bring it into the light and remove it from what you've been carrying. And then to come and set it down at the cross right here, this little cross. We'll make sure that they, again, don't get red. And then after that, move either to the left or to the right to receive communion. If you want more time to pray or you have a gluten allergy, we have gluten-free station over at the kneeling station. So when you're ready, come to the middle, lay down that confession, hear the words of Jesus' forgiveness and his love, and then move out to receive communion.